I've been a director here for a few years, and no doubt one of the biggest challenges I faced was uh, two years ago or so when Alan Millett told me he was thinking of retiring. And I faced the prospect of replacing the, uh, the first holder of the Mason chair, the Raymond E. Mason Jr. chair in military history. And I'm glad to say that I've been very successful, I think, in, in filling that void. If you haven't had a chance to meet Pete Mansour, he's here. But this is sort of an event uh, to throw down the gauntlet to Pete <laughs> and show him the shoes he's trying to fill. And it's been... Uh, <laughs> and they're, they're uh, huge shoes, and Alan Millett has been a key part of the Mershon Center my entire time at Ohio State. And so it's with real pleasure that I get to give this introduction today. Um, Alan is now the director of the Eisenhower Center for American Studies <clears throat> at, the, uh, well, at the University of New Orleans, and he's the Stephen E. Ambrose Professor of History there as well. Uh, he's written ten books. You know many of them. Uh, they emphasize or concentrate on military history, some like the War to be Won and Commandants of the Marine Corps are very well known all over the world. Uh, same for a common defense. Uh, for at least the last decade, uh, Alan has been focusing on the Korean War. Maybe in a way no one else uh, has before done that. And he's played a role there that's been recognized both in Korea and in the United States. A few years ago, he published the first volume of his history of the Korean War, The War for Korea, 1945 to 1950. When this began, and I was here long enough to remember that, this was going to be a book. Uh, I now understand it's three volumes, and we're now uh, near the end of the second volume, and a, a third yet to come. In the meantime, uh, Alan has retired, but hardly uh, left the field. This past summer, he won the Pritzker Military Library Literature Award for Lifetime Achievement. A, a tremendous accomplishment. He's also, a year ago, won the U.S. Secretary of Defense Distinguished Service Medal. Um, and he's won the Samuel Elliott Morrison Prize from the Society of Military History for his lifetime contribution. And just a day or so ago, I saw a notice uh, that he's been offered an honorary doctor, awarded an honorary doctor from the Belgian Defense Royal Military Academy with a generous offer to come and receive it, which I presume he will accept sometime uh, in and, the future. And you don't even pay for it. <laughs> They'll even pay for it. <laughs> Today he's going to talk about the war in Korea from 1950 to 1951. And in his study of Korea, Alan identifies this as the third phase of what he calls a Maoist people's war and a shift uh, to a conventional military approach to that war. And I think he makes a convincing case as well that studying the Korean War is a missing chapter in recent efforts to understand both the Cold War and civil wars more generally. And so I've introduced with great interest and with real pride uh, someone who's been a big part of the Mershon Center uh, my entire career, three. Alan Millett. Thank you very much, Rick. Well, of course, pleasure to be here. And this is not my first time in this room, as you can well imagine. Uh, there are a number of people I 
should recognize in the audience, I'm glad to see many of my former colleagues, particularly the ones I like best. Thank you for coming. I didn't think the others would be here, so it's not a problem. We all know who they are. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> introduce my wife, Martha Farley Millett, who's been certainly my companion in uh, Korean studies as well as other things. I also want to thank Raymond D. Mason III for coming. And, and after this is over, Ray, you can come over and lay your hands on volume two and tell your dad it does exist. And, um, down at the museum, uh, what, two weeks ago? Two weeks ago, we had the first Raymond E. Mason lecture on World War II. And uh, Jack Vesey, who was a dear friend of, of Ray's dad, was, to, was there to give the talk, and I thought it was a smashing success. Very hard to draw people to events in New Orleans unless someone is singing. <laughs> and we haven't quite figured out how to work that in to World War II studies. The Andrews sisters a little hard to replace. And, but it's a, it's a tough act down there because unless it's singing and playing, the, the people don't come out. But in this case, uh, we had a very, very nice crowd. And Ray Three was there to share the evening with us. I thought it might be interesting at least to sort of talk about the intellectual odyssey in which I've been involved uh, my entire professional life and, and how I got to this point of dedicating the last 14 or 15 years uh, to a war um, that is wedged in the American consciousness between the Second World War and Vietnam. I would argue that Americans evaluate wars on the amount of impact that they have on American domestic life, pro or con, which means we'll overlook the war with Mexico, overlook the war with Spain, overlook World War I, and overlook the Korean War, all of which are significant in American foreign policy, international behavior, but quite honestly have had very muted impact upon American domestic life. And so I think the, within American domestic history, that's where Korea is and why it, it does not get as much sort of public education or public recognition. I can assure you that in Japan and Korea and China, it is not the forgotten war or the limited war or whatever else you want to attach to it. Uh, my family and I have spent a great deal of time in Asia since... Well, 1991, when I was a visiting professor at the Korean National Defense University. And between that period and 2004, we were in Korea almost every year for at least several months at a time. And, of course, we had Korean officers here who were my graduate students, others in international relations. We have a very good continuing relationship with the foreign policy, defense policy establishment in the Republic of Korea. I point that out because I think my own interest, other than the Marine Corps' participation in the Korean War, and I joined the Marine Corps in 1959, that was still a World War II Korean War Marine Corps. We go on field problems, the bad guys were always Chinese, and they blew whistles and bugles, and it was always cold, and we were using the same weapons. I think they were absolutely the same weapons that had fought the Korean War. I'm almost sure they were. Um, and uh, so I suppose that 
sort of uh, retreat hell image is something that the that I had grown up with, in fact, that I ended up writing about later, but within the institutional history of the Marine Corps, not about the war as an international conflict. I started really uh, intellectually as a, as a historian of the American Armed Forces, institutional historian. I never really wrote or tried to write about a war as a war writ large until I took on this project and Wick Murray and I then tackled the World War II book uh, as well. And I can assure you it is a lot tougher writing about a war writ large than it is writing about a war's impact upon an institution. I think it's a lot easier. Um, all you have to do in the Marine Corps say, case is say the Marine Corps won the war, whatever it is, whichever war. You know, you let it go at that. Uh, everyone's happy. Uh, but then you have to deal, when you deal with a war writ large, with all the other participants, the good guys, the bad guys, the guys you can't figure out who are good or bad. Uh, you've got all kinds of problems. And, and frankly, uh, I'm not sure one person is capable of writing about a really big war by themselves. If I were to design a way to write about a significant war, I do it with a team of people. Anything I write about the Korean War has got to be predicated by the fact that I don't read Chinese. My Korean is horrible, as vindicated by the Korean Language Institute at Dunsay University, who will tell you my Korean is horrible. Uh, uh, Russian, I mean, there are all kinds of things that you really should know to do this well. All I can say is I'm doing it better. I think, than any American historian has done thus far. At least I hope I've raised the bar um, some. Fortunately, I have very good friends whose native language is Korean, whose native language is Chinese, whose native language is Russian. And so I've had lots of help along the way. Um, and, and I would be the first to admit that uh, uh, this is not something I could have done at all without the help of a large number of people who uh, I, I hope will receive credit in my acknowledgments. Uh, for those of you who understand the military culture, you know, of course, that whatever a lecture is like, it is unsuccessful unless there are handouts. And so we have here today uh, the introduction to the book. It has a flawed page four, but we tried to replace uh, there's also a statistical breakout on the Korean War, which you're welcome to, and also a chronology. The chronology you'll find interesting because it was done by the VFW, and it is very good on American participation, and it's absolutely silent on everybody else. And the reason you have that is because it is the American version of what happened in Korea with other nation's participation uh, simply not acknowledged. That's not at all uncommon. Uh, I think, however, it's unfortunate. I can talk a little bit about that later. But I thought it would be in interesting, at least uh, I hope, to uh, sort of figure out how this project uh, developed. As Rick said when I originally thought about this, one book, right, you know, lots of secondary sources that were pretty dependable. Knock it out in a couple of years. Well, here we are, 
14 years later, more or less, and we're still at it. What happened along the way? <laughs> okay. Well, this is what happened. Yeah, you start off, you know. 1994 basically was when I really seriously started to think that I was going to do a Korean War book. Four books later, 20 essays and articles, whatever, you know, here we are today. One of the things that happened was I, I got involved in writing historiography. I don't like historiography, uh, particularly. I think historians' function is to go out and write about the past as you reconstructed the best you can without worrying too much of where you fall in this school or that school or that, you know, whatever. Nevertheless, particularly if you want to pass general exams, you sort of have to know what other people have said about this subject. And so I got off into the historiographical track, and it looked something like this. Wrote a piece for the Royal Asiatic Society, uh, Korea. And then that turned into an article for the Joint uh, Services Journal. And then there was one for the Society of Military History. Then there was one for the Journal of Strategic Studies. Now, they're all getting longer and more tedious all the time, of course, because the more I learned, the more I had to share it. Then I started to get dangerously multilingual and then deciding that stuff in English wasn't enough. I was going to put Chinese sources and Russian sources, and Korean sources, both sides. Oh, boy. Uh, again, my friends, I think, saved me from disaster. But in any event, what's occurred is that there's now a book called The Korean War, very novel, uh, which is part of a bibli bibliographical series published by Potomac Books. I don't intend to write any more. However, there's also a called the Encyclopedia of the Korean War, big multi-volume project. It's now being rewritten. And so guess who do, gets to do the historiographical entry? I've already done one for the first version. Now there's a second. And so we're redoing most of this encyclopedia in the name of sources other than English language. That, I think, is at least some accomplishment. Now, if I were a political scientist, I could probably make a career out of having done all that, couldn't I? Ah, well, you've got to do some other things, too. <clears throat> I started to think about stories of trying to personalize the Korean War, particularly as seen not by American participants, but by all the others. UN troops, Chinese, North Koreans, South Koreans, Russians. And I found out that that was a marvelous project, but it doesn't work well if you're doing a narrative, grand narrative history. And so I ended up doing a book called Their War for Korea. Which I also call Korean War Light. Well, it is and it isn't. Oral history, as you know, cultural tradition, very important. And I'm perfectly happy to have people do it and read it. The difficulty is if you're doing a grand sort of narrative history of a war, it's hard to work in those individual stories. 
And therefore, I decided along the way that this deserved another book. There are 40 anecdotes. It's sort of like Reader's Digest, most unforgettable story I ran into kind of thing. Half of them are interview-based. I mean, I really talked to the real people or corresponded with them at length. Uh, Half of them are based upon original documents, reports, um, prisoner interrogations, and that sort of thing. One of the difficulties with oral history is that it tends to be repetitive. I don't mean to diminish people's service, but 15 PFCs who were in Korea in the winter of 1950-51 all remember cold, being shot at, and lots of Chinese. Now, I don't mean to suggest that at the time that wasn't important. It certainly was. But you don't get much more than that. As I think... Some wag said that probably slam Marshall. You can only be so naked and so dead. And then you don't really, you know, what have you learned? So I intentionally went out and tried to see how this war looked to people who not only came from different nations, but had very, very different experiences within the war, but but did so in in areas that struck me as unique to the Korean War. Uh, for example, if you do that, then you've got to pay special attention to the question of, of POW behavior, both communist and UN, because they become a large factor in the war. So I dealt with a Marine colonel who confessed to war crimes, germ warfare. I then studied a Navy doctor who was accused of war crimes and germ warfare because he was treating Chinese prisoners and, and curing them. Uh, dysentery and tuberculosis, and he became very much persona non grata to the communists because they knew he was doing good work, and uh, they wanted to uh, make sure that everyone knew that he was really a chemical, you know, a biological war criminal. Uh, I deal dealt with people who weren't sure which army they were in, because at one time or another they were in the South Korean army, and then they were in the North Korean army, and then they were POWs, and they had a terrible time. They could have been Serbs. They could have been Confederates. You know, name your war. But from an individual standpoint, there are some very, very nasty, difficult choices that one faces, just even in the name of survival. Um, I dealt with the uh, Korean generals uh, who were condemned by their American counterparts. You're too young. And they would say, yeah, but I've been continuously in the field fighting since I was 18 years old. <laughs> you know, how much more experience do I need, you know, to be a 28, 29-year-old division commander? Probably a little bit from our standpoint. Well, you haven't been to Fort Leavenworth, therefore you cannot command a division. Maybe. Um, Secondhand, I I got into stuff, the Russian participants, particularly pilots. Um, In Russia, an interesting phenomenon, actually much like the one here in the United States. Once the Vietnam veterans sort of came out and began to complain about their behavior in Russia, the Soviets who had served in Afghanistan did the same thing, called Afghansi. They became very radical and unpleasant and everything else. And at that point, the Russians who had served in Korea, and there were lots of them, said, well, how come we don't get some attention? And then so then we get... Uh, since about 1990, I run a considerable number of Russian veterans, mostly pilots, um, who've now you know, talked about their participation in the war. 
So there's this whole, you know, what I tried to do was to, to talk about the Korean War as it affected individuals and small groups, which produced their war for Korea. Then I got involved in translating. Now, translating, he admits that he's a, a goof for Asian languages. Yes, true. But aha, I learned how Asians translate from their native language into English. And then what one has to do to fix that uh, for Anglophone audiences. So my summer at Yonsei and other uh, tangles with Chinese and Korean uh, proved useful because at least I could talk to Korean authors and Chinese authors, both of whom I worked with, and we agreed that what I would then do was to rewrite their translation from their native language into English. I was involved in two projects, one uh, Lee Xiaoping at Central Oklahoma, you've been at Wittenberg. We did a book on Mao's generals, which has now, I think, received a fair amount of attention and has served as a kind of portal to the study of the memoirs of the leadership of the Chinese Expeditionary Force uh, in Korea. I was then involved in two of the three volumes of the Korean, the rewrite of the Korean official history, and um, worked with uh, you know a team of, of Koreans. And I think, again, we thought that the final result was better than it might otherwise have been. But it was a great advantage for me, in a sense, to then get inside the, the, the Asian accounts uh, of the Korean War. Since then, I've been the beneficiary of, of two developments. One is that, the, this is weird but true, the Department of Defense, Office of Andy Marshall, Office of Net Assessment, has sponsored an English-language history of the Korean War written by a Chinese team associated with the uh, Academy of Military Sciences in Beijing, the the official sort of brain trust of the PLA. And I have it, and there are six copies around, and I've got permission to use it. And it has correspondence, it has orders, it has uh, narrative to be sure, but what's really valuable is we get Peng Tewa's orders, we get conference records, we get all kinds of things that for the first time really get us inside the decision-making of the Chinese army in, in Korea. And to tell you the truth, I really like the Chinese generals. <laughs> I think they're damn good. and they, They're really smart. And, in fact, they were so good and so smart that Mao Zedong basically had to kick them out um, after, the, uh, after the 1950s. Peng Taiwa got involved as, as Minister of Defense in the Great Leap Forward, let a thousand flowers bloom, and ended up dying in prison. And most of his contemporaries were sent out to the PLA's equivalent of pig farms and then didn't, weren't sort of rehabilitated until... Uh, uh, till the 1980s, and since then they've been quite active. Uh, and there's still a few alive, Che Cheng Wen, for example. Um, and they have been very active now in working on this history of uh, uh, the Korean War that, that I've had access to. We used to complain about the Russian sources. Well, they, you know, we couldn't believe that there weren't Russian uh, history of the war, and it turned out there was. And it was a report written by Nikolaevich, whatever, whatever, uh, uh, Rajubayev, who was a Soviet general. And he was sent in in November of 1950 to replace 
the existing Russian mission, which had lost the war. And so Stalin pulled all of them out, sent a new team in. And Rajabayev's job was to analyze the defeat of 1950. What had the North Koreans done wrong? He stayed, both as military representative and, and, dipl- and ambassador from the Soviet Union, and, did, and stayed in Korea until October of 1953. So he and his, his mission were there throughout the rest of the war. And, in fact, being good Soviet Army bureaucrats, wrote voluminous reports, um, which are now available in Korean and Russian, but not English. I'm trying to tell the Woodrow Wilson Center they've got all kinds of Russian exiles and defectors in Washington, uh, and, and they could easily put this into English. So I, I have a copy of the Korean version, and I have one of my, two of my students translate big hunks of it but it is fundamentally the Russian history of the Korean War. Not surprisingly, it stresses artillery. <laughs> For some reason, the, you know, the communist side never has enough artillery. And, uh, tanks, not such a big deal, but boy, there's all kinds of, uh, of reports. Interestingly enough, it doesn't say anything much about the Chinese at all. It says a great deal about the North Korean army. Uh, the clue then being that there may be some tension within this alliance, as we certainly know there is. Okay. Um, so that is another uh, path. The first, you know, sort of mainstream book is House Burning, um, which covered the 1945-1950 period. Um what I attempted to do there was simply to, to reconceptualize the Korean War as a war of national liberation or civil war within Korea and to point out that the date of the war really is either April of 1948 or earlier. In Korea, they know this. By the, the day, June 25th, 1950, that there was an invasion, probably 40,000 Koreans had already died fighting. Uh, 7,000 plus on the security forces, and their names are on a plaque at the War Memorial at Yongsan in, in Seoul. And an estimated minimum of 30,000 other Koreans who may or may not have been guerrillas or, or partisans. At the moment, uh, the Korean government is sponsoring what they call the Commission for Truth and Reconciliation. I've got to tell you, the truth and reconciliation may not work. They can have one or the other. But the more truth they get, I think the less reconciliation there's likely to be because it's simply going to dredge up a lot of really bad memories as to who was on whose side, particularly in this 1945-1950 period. There are, in fact, walking the streets of Korea today indictable war criminals on both sides. But under, you know, under the circumstances of... Armistice Agreement 1953 and other provisions there living under uh, amnesty. We know of one case, a rock lieutenant colonel actually shot a very prominent liberation politician. He killed him in 1949. Um, he was put in jail, then immediately released so he could fight in the Korean War, went back in the Rock Army, retired as a lieutenant colonel, retired, moved to the United States and Canada, 
where he lived happily for years and years, thinking he was safe. He went back to Korea at the age of 82 and was immediately murdered by an adherent age 83 of the man he had killed in 1949. Now, the answer, you know, the observation is no one in Korea was surprised. Yeah, some bitch deserved it, you know. Killed Kim Koo. All right. And then, basically, he was so old, I think he was convicted, I, I really don't remember, uh, but nothing fundamentally happened to him. It was just a natural extension <laughs> of this, this inner conflict that had, existed in the 1945-1950 period. This map, I think, tell, is quite telling. The CIA produced it in February 1949, and it shows the concentration of communist guerrilla movements. They represent only about one quarter of the number of people allied to what was known as the South Korean Labor Party, which is the Communist Party, conducting an insurgency, which was designed first to prevent the establishment of the government of South Korea and then to undermine it. And, in fact, the invasion, I think, would not have occurred in June of 1950 um, if they had been successful. But they were not. And Sigmund Rhee's government, assisted by an American military assistance group, had, with uh, a great deal of pain and uh, a lot of nastiness, uh, fundamentally defeated this insurgency. And so that the war that begins in June of 1950 is fundamentally an escalation of a continuing uh, uh, conflict, uh, ratcheted up. Uh, by Kim Il-sung with the approval of Joe Stalin, Mao Zedong, with, on the assumption that this earlier war had failed, but yet had so weakened the South Korean government and their armed forces that within weeks, you know, a real big hammer blow would finish off uh, the South Korean regime. One of the assumptions uh, was that the United States would not intervene. We had pulled out the last of our ground troops in June, July of 1949. I personally think that that was a wretched mistake. It's under everybody else after June of 1950 because it's pretty clear that that one regimental combat team sitting right up on the Weejung-Bu corridor, which is directly north of Seoul, was a major deterrent to any kind of conventional invasion. In fact, Stalin made it a precondition uh, for approving the invasion of June uh, that the Americans pull out. The other factor was American air power. Um, the, the fear was that if the United States intervened, the one thing they could do was to provide air power to the South Korean army, which is true. Uh, but by timing the attack so that it began at the, at the beginning of the rainy season in Korea, called Changma, um, that the air power would be limited, and there were no bases. Once you, once Kimpo Falls, the big air base um, west of Seoul, and Suwon, the only places where you have runways large enough to handle big planes, Kimpo's up by Seoul, Suwon, you can see the south. Those are the only air bases in 1950 anybody can use for combat operations. And if they're both captured, put out of business, then any air that's used has to come all the way from Japan, which means that they have virtually no time over target. They can't find anybody. It's raining. It's cloudy. Uh, air isn't going to do it. 
the communist calculation was absolutely correct, with one exception. First of all, the United States intervened, which surprised everybody, including Douglas MacArthur. Couldn't even believe it. Uh, it uh, certainly surprised the communists, except for the Minister of Defense of North Korea, a very clever guy named uh, Che. And he said, I don't care what you guys say. I don't think we can assume the Americans are going to stay out. Kim Il-sung said, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. We got this all figured out. But in any event, what happened was that the rainy season turned out to be one of the lightest in Korean history. I went through all the records of the Fifth Air Force. I can tell you how many sorties were flown on what days. And fundamentally, you could fly somewhere in Korea every day. Now, that didn't mean that you hit the right thing. Now, that's quite an entirely different problem. But it does mean that at least you could put air up and go uh, uh, hit the enemy targets to tell two air stories. Uh, Peck Sun-yup, who's uh, Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant of the South Korean Army, still alive, wonderful man, uh, wrote his memoirs, which should be required reading. Um, was with the remnants of his division, about 2,500 people in one cannon out of a division of about 10,000. They're retreating across the Han River. They barely get across the river, and they're immediately strafed and bombed by the U.S. Air Force. And, of course, Peck's South Korean troops got a little upset about this. Peck pointed out, first of all, that they hadn't, hadn't caused many casualties, if any. He said two things. A, the United States is into the war. B, maybe they'll hit the right people with more effectiveness a little later. <laughs> well, it was a little tough. Another story, Air Force Colonel named Murphy talking to an Army Colonel named Bill Houseman, Jim Houseman, says, I don't know how we're going to direct these strikes. We don't have anybody on the ground. There are no observers. There's nobody airborne that can direct these strikes. How do we know who to hit? And Houseman said to Murphy, he says, if they're organized, it's the communists. If they're disorganized, it's us. <laughs> Meaning the Rock Army. Well, that's Still wasn't too helpful when it came to sorting out refugee columns and some other things, but you know, at the time that was that was pretty good advice. Okay, what I want to do now is I'll, I'll put up a, a map that shows uh, geographically the, uh, uh, the course of the war. One of the, my hopes is that before I turn 80, I learn how to use a view graph. Don't ask me about PowerPoint. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> Although having been the victim of a lot of PowerPoint, I can tell you that the machine takes over from the brains. At least that's my excuse. Okay. Upper left-hand corners is the, the first phase of the war called North Koreans Win. And it's 25 June to roughly mid-September of 1950. Uh, Kim Il-sung actually planned to have a parade in Pusan on the 15th of August, which is uh, Korean Liberation Day. It's actually Double Liberation Day. In 1945, Japanese surrendered to a committee of Koreans. 15 August is also the establishment of the Republic of Korea. It didn't happen. Um, 
what I think I've done to make this a little different is to point out that about half of this fighting is being done by the South Korean Army, which you will not find in American accounts. Um, uh, basically, the American uh, forces manned this side of the, what became the perimeter, and the South Korean forces the upper side. They join at uh, uh, Daegu, which is um, not which is roughly right there. Um, it's depressing to some degree to write about this because um, the GIs often were accused of being out of shape, cowardly, they didn't want to fight. Um, I must tell you that one of my problems with the U.S. Army is that whenever they get into trouble, they do blame the troops. And and that's not what happened here. Uh, It's too few troops, too much ground, road-bound, Lots of problems with fire support coordination. There's no question that some of the troops were out of shape, but in fact, the Eighth Army had been training fairly hard for about 10 months. Difficulty was the training cycle had just ended. Forty percent of the people had gone back to the states, and 40 percent who came in were the new new guys who had not trained. And one would again run into all kinds of problems. For example, 1947, the United States had an Officer Personnel Act, which was designed to make everybody equal. And so the guys who had been staff officers in World War II sort of said, well, it's my turn to be a commander. Gee whiz, I didn't get enough medals, I didn't get enough exposure in the Second World War. Can't I command? If I don't, I'm not going to be competitive for promotion on this new system. They said, yes, you're right, okay. So what you find then is a force, and this includes Marines, who have battalion and regimental commanders who fundamentally have had lots of service but have not been combat commanders. It's not an accident. The most distinguished Army regimental commander, John H. Michaelis, had commanded an airborne regiment in the Second World War from Normandy all the way through Beston. There wasn't anything that Mike Michaelis didn't know about fighting. And then as the war went on, Paul Freeman, John Throckmorton, you begin to see the emergence of, of combat commanders within the Army who were every bit as good as their World War II contemporaries and, and many of whom had, had, um, had relevant experience. But the war started off with people who were relatively um, unschooled in combat operations. Unfortunately, the North Korean Army had lots of people who were schooled in combat operations. A whole group of them had been officers in the Red Army. One North Korean general had been chief of staff of a Soviet division in the battle for Berlin. Um, Another whole group of them had been officers in the the People's Liberation Army through the, through the, uh, the whole Revolutionary War in China. And it's very interesting that in many cases the Chinese officers couldn't convince their sort of Russian, Soviet, Korean counterparts of how tough the Americans were likely to be. Chinese were much more, uh, and and the the KPA officers who served in the Chinese army were much more attuned in many ways. How did they learn that? From the Japanese. Because, in fact, there were Japanese and Koreans who had defected from the Japanese army, joined the communist army in China. 
and it had been risen to positions of some influence. Okay, then you have uh, uh, my sort of take on this is that General Walton Walker, who's the 8th Army commander, was better than most everybody thinks. He's under a process of reevaluation. Um, uh, MacArthur is not nearly as important as MacArthur thought. Uh, <laughs> that should come as no surprise. But in some ways, uh, uh, he was an embarrassment to everybody. And, and well, much of, the, of Walker and his staff were trying to keep MacArthur off their back. Uh, J. Lawton Collins, who was chief of staff of the Army, Omar Bradley, chairman of the JCS, packed both FECOM, Far East Command, and 8th Army staff with their guys. MacArthur's Batan Bunch has almost nothing to do with this war, with the exception of the G2, Charles Willoughby, who didn't quite get it right most of the time. But I think there was a price to be paid, which is that these guys had all fought the Germans and fought the Germans well, but didn't have any idea how to fight an Asian opponent. If it had been the Germans, they'd have been just fine. But no, the Chinese and North Koreans didn't fight the way the Germans did. And therefore, and I mean this comes from American officers who had fought the Japanese. They kept saying, they're not going to do it that way. They're going to sneak around at night. They're going to infiltrate. We've got to be really buttoned up. There's no such thing as a rear area. There's no linear battlefield. We're going to have all kinds of problems because you guys are treating the North Koreans because they have tanks as if they're in Panzertruppen. I can assure you they're not. And in fact, the air success of the air war almost ensured the North Koreans were going to have to abandon that. They gave up trying to be Russians in July of 1950 and became Chinese tactically um, and, and therefore made themselves you know, terribly uh, difficult to, to, uh, to fight. Um, just to, to push along here, you have then the, the victory period, mid-September through uh, the end of October, of 1950. One of the things I've been able to do, I think, is to reconstruct in somewhat greater detail the decision-making on uh, Beijing's side. Um, and I must tell you, though, that you go back to Whiting and others, and they, they hold up pretty well. With the material they had, they do a pretty good job. Uh, there's a kind of an interesting debate as to whether Mao was for or against intervention. I think we've settled that, is, which was he was for intervention, but he wasn't sure the Central Military Commission and the Politburo was. Lin Piao, who was everybody's favorite PLA general at the time, refused command. He said, oh, fight the Americans. I'm feeling very ill. I need to go to Moscow for R&R. That's exactly what he did. Now, poor old Pung, you know, who's the big buddy of Mao's, you know, old-time revolutionary. We'll get him to come in and do this. He, uh, he agreed to do it, although with tremendous reservations. Um, the deal fundamentally is this. The Chinese will fight, but boy, they want a lot for it. And what they wanted and what they got was the whole PLA was eventually rearmed with Russian weapons. Um, they got um, um, uh, an air force, which they very badly needed. 
the one thing they didn't get as much of as they wanted was the use of the Russian Air Force over uh, over Korea, outside of Mig Alley. Uh, Russians always refused really to fly missions much more, well, about halfway between Pyongyang and the border. But the Chinese believed that they could they could fudge that and force the Russians eventually to commit their air force out of Manchuria in air operations against UN command. So they were working that deal, you know, as long as they could and really didn't give up until late 51. It was pretty clear the Russians were not going to extend their own aviation uh, south of the, of the Alu. Um, the Chinese were to get their own arms industry, which would be Russian design, Russian um, machinery, machine tools, and in fact they got, uh, they got that, although not as much as they wanted. So as long as the Chinese fought, the more aid they got from the Soviet Union. That was their deal. Uh, the other part of the deal was the Chinese insisted that they take control of operations, that the North Koreans would be a junior partner. They had to do a lot of maneuvering to make sure that that happened, while at the same time Kim Il-sung was maintained as the commander-in-chief of the North Korean armed forces. Uh, There's some very interesting stories from the Chinese side as to how difficult it was to to deal with Kim, which was no surprise to anybody, I suspect. Okay. The war of 1950-51 is, is a war determined fundamentally by a change in war aims. I'll do it from the American side. Preserve South Korea. Then in October 1950, it's unify Korea. Communist side. Conquer South Korea, have a socialist state. All right, that doesn't work. Chinese come in and they say, okay, Preserve North Korea, and then after a couple operations, which the Chinese army does pretty well, Mao says, oh, now we're going to unify Korea. And this is a decision that uh, basically announced in, the end of, of, uh, in December of 1950, and then for the next until June of 1951, the Chinese are trying to unify Korea. Then after five different offensives and a huge number of casualties, then they give up and say, no, this isn't going to work. Now, Kim Il-sung and Sigmund Rhee never gave up their war aim, <laughs> which was a unified Korea under their government. The difficulty, obviously, was that their, their big buddies who were fighting the war uh, didn't share that goal. Now, this is then when the, the peace talks break out. Uh, I don't think you really want to know all this, but there it is, 12 chapters, volume 2. It ends basically with the the beginning of the negotiations over the the, uh, peace talks at uh, Kaesong. Uh, The second part of the next book, which is called Enough is Enough, uh, the second volume is called They Came from the North, and there are lots of fancy quotes from traditional Korean generals and things. Um, but um, the second book picks up with the truce talks in night, uh, June, July, July of 1951, and goes through the Geneva Conference of 1954. People forget the Geneva Conference, which is part of the deal. 
uh, at Panmunjom in, in uh, July of 1953. So the war, in a sense, really ends or fades away or changes uh, in 1954. And it also then gets into prisoner exchanges and lots of other things. One of the things I point out is that by 1957, both Sigmund Rhee and Kim Il-sung had fundamentally eliminated all their domestic competition. Now, in Rhee's case, it didn't last too long. 1960 was as far as he went. Kim Il-sung's case, it went to 1994. It went on a long time, and one could argue it's still going on. Uh, but I think that, that it's appropriate, and I, I, I'll write about this, to talk about the post-war experience, which is a solidification of the regimes. Because in the 51-53 period, what's at stake for Sigmund Rhee and Kim Il-sung is how to get along with what's going to be a negotiated peace and to position themselves, A, to stay in power, but B, to reopen the conflict on different terms, which presumably you know, would then advance their, their own interests. Uh, right about that, obviously, I've had to learn a lot about Korean politics. Fortunately, it's pretty good literature. But from an American perspective, what gets to be frustrating is that everybody talks about the stalemate. Stalemate, the geographic stalemate. Well, that's true enough. But that assumes that after the fact that that was unimportant. Um, but that's not so. The Chinese in 1952 launched a, a huge offensive uh, because they were convinced that UN command was about to pull an end run, either to Wonsan or Pyongyang, to break open the conflict by doing a kind of second inshot. Um, what then is used is, oh, it's the POW issue. Well, that's in there, of course, that's important, but that's not nearly as important as other kinds of issues related to terrain, to force structure, to the fate of foreign troops. There are all kinds of things that were negotiated and then fell out of the agreement. So you can't see them there because they proved to be non-negotiable. But nobody really knew that, uh, certainly in 1951. The United States debated you know, whether to go on the, the offensive and go back to what's known as the Pyongyang-Wansan line. Um, and there were certainly plans to do that. Uh, they were resurrected in 52 and then by General Eisenhower's president in 53. And every time they took a look at it, uh, it wasn't going to work. The Chinese and the North Koreans knew for certain in their minds that this could happen. So, in fact, they have about... About a million troops, Korean and Chinese, in country in 1953, but only half of them are actually up on the line. And they rotate forces in and out of the line. Where, where are the others? They're on both coasts. It's exactly where we don't need them. <laughs> Just right astride the potential landing places at Wonsan and, and, and Pyongyang. So, yeah, there are Chinese forces here, but, boy, there are all kinds of people right along here well, uh, so the Chinese are perfectly aware of the fact that uh, uh, this was a menace. You, from their standpoint, think about this a minute. They're sitting there. Ike gets elected president. Mark Clark becomes Far East Command commander, replacing Ridgeway. Uh, James Van Fleet is the Eighth Army commander, then succeeded by that great paratrooper Maxwell D. Taylor. And the Chinese say, "These guys do this stuff." <laughs> you know. 
yeah, they did it against the Germans, but why should we not expect them to come at us the same way they did uh, the Axis in 1943, 1945? And obviously, that's perfectly reasonable to to think that kind of thing. Okay. Um, Rather than than ramble on, uh, I'd certainly like to open this up to to your observations and questions and... uh, uh, one what one thirty, Rick, more or less, and then I'll uh, um, you know stick around a little bit after that. Okay. Yes. Yeah, Rich. We had failure to include yeah. Korea within this so-called Asian defense perimeter. How precise did you think that was, and making up the minds of Well, the Republicans thought it was terrible. Obviously, you know, it's like a lot of things that people get labeled with after the fact, which is uh, the opposition party then says, see, that did it, Atchison, if he hadn't said this. First of all, it had already been said by Harry Truman and others in the fall of 1949 because it was related to the defense budget. And what happened, I think, is that the State Department launched out on a damage control operation. The strategic planning of the time, joint war plan, you know, whatever, whatever, um, you know, envision World War III, okay, with the Soviet Union. Uh, what are we going to do about the Asian theater? The answer is try to hold on to Japan, have naval and air bases that we hold on to, and nothing on the mainland is important to us in fighting Russia. That's the strategic picture. If you read Atchison's speech, he says that's not all that counts. We have other interests. We have other uh, things about our relationships with, in Asia that really make Korea pretty important because we've committed our own prestige and that of the UN to maintaining uh, this new state. Um, the UN is, is committed to a unified Korea someday. Uh, the whole world wonders whether we're ever going to keep any of our commitments, particularly if we've sold the Chinese out. I mean, that was one put it quite that way, but, you know, there were lots of reasons Korea was important. And you can take that speech and look at it and, and, and to some degree read history backwards and you see that, that what he was doing. The thing is that there's an aid bill that comes up in March of 1950 and the administration has to add Formosa to the aid bill, otherwise they don't get it passed, but they do. Uh, in May of 1950, they then have a, a military assistance program which goes to Vietnam and Formosa and Korea. Uh, they send Dulles. Dulles is in Korea a week before the invasion, and he's principally there to reassure the Koreans that they haven't been sold out. And he actually tells Rhee, we're here with you, buddy. You know, We understand you feel you're going to be invaded. Uh, you can count on us to back you up. Um, not just because you're nice guys, necessarily, but because, we, you know, we see Korea as part of the reconstruction of Japan. We see it as part of our damage control after the fall of nationalist government in China. Um, in fact, at, the, at that time, the Philippines, Formosa, Korea, and Japan were talking about some kind of Asian alliance. And we were a little concerned about that development. And in the sense it was to preempt what might have been a kind of, uh, you know, real regional initiative to create a kind of anti-communist coalition. You know, you take Chiang Kai-shek and 
I don't know who the president of the Philippines was, Carino maybe at the time, or whomever, but they were all, and Rhee and, and the, of course, what became the liberal democratic government of Japan, they were all quite concerned about American withdrawal from the area after the fall of China. Yeah, Jim? Yeah, he, he got called back in June of 1950. Uh, well, I wonder to what extent we gave much of a signal to the Soviet government. I don't think he gave any, as far as I know, Jim. Uh, I've read his paper, some of his papers, biography and things. Harriman's actually the shadow president. Uh, he's called a, a national security advisor and this kind of thing, but, but he really then became a, a real troubleshooter. Uh, Truman said to him, you need to back Dean up. So if anyone tried to categorize him, he's sort of the, the shadow Secretary of State. Bob, does that sound? But you're the Natchison biographer. Yeah. Uh, did Harriman have larger ambitions? Yeah, sure he did. Um, but um, Harriman becomes what I call one of the big four. Sec- Secretary of State, Harriman, and Chairman of the JCS. They're the, the guys whose opinions really count with with Truman. But I think um, I don't think the Soviets they thought this was a low risk op for them um, that they could you know, plausible denial. Um, Stalin's uh, instructions to the military mission was don't go south of the 38th parallel. I'm almost sure some of the Russian advisors did. I think they've got probably as far south as Taejeon, big battle, you know, North Korean success. Many of them uh, pretended to be East European journalists. That was their, their cover. We think that one of the Russian advisors was actually captured by the rocks. I don't think he lasted very long. Yeah, but this is, there are lots of things about the Russian involvement that are still... Uh, kind of unknown to be to be sure, particularly for the 1950 period. Yeah, Dave. Yeah, right. I think they're parallel, Dave. I don't think it's an action-reaction thing. I think what had happened was that there, was, there were plans in 1949 to, to create some kind of internal security force for Japan in addition to the national police. They're going to call it a police reserve. And no question that, that all of this was sub rosa. You have a problem, which is MacArthur was really sincerely dedicated to demilitarizing and pacifying Japan. For example, he didn't want any American bases in Japan. He even fussed about Okinawa. So his removal, in fact, made it easier for us then to negotiate a, a, a mutual security treaty with Japan in 1960 and firm up the base rights thing. Um, in fact, that was one of Dulles's part of Dulles's mission in 1950 was to talk to MacArthur about the treaty. Because Dulles was going to be point man on the negotiations with Japan. The um, um, once the Eighth Army has to move out of Japan, then that of course provides an additional reason to create this police reserve, which then becomes the ground self-defense force. To be sure, 
Um, one of the, the things that I found initially mind-boggling to try to really put yourself in the shoes of the Koreans and the Chinese is their belief that American intervention was in fact encouraged by Japan. That we had been kind of stupid Europeans and Westerners. We had been conned by the clever Japanese into beginning the restoration of Japanese influence on the mainland of Asia. And um, anything that, that suggested of a Japanese presence in Korea drove the North Koreans crazy. They began to they began to protest in the UN as early as July that the United States was fighting this war with Japanese troops. Actually, it was the 5th Regimental Combat Team from Hawaii, which was about 40% Nisi. It honestly got a true story. This, you know, 5th Regimental Combat Team got brought up to strength, deploys to Korea in, in August of 1950, and some, some dimwit in the regiment said, we're really going to fool those North Koreans because instead of making radio transmissions in English, we'll switch to Japanese. <laughs> the, you know, as if Koreans didn't know Japanese. Oh, they knew a lot of Japanese. You know. So in fact, once the, the fifth RCT starts to, to make, transmit in Japanese, the North Koreans start laughing over the airwaves. So I said, oh, Valerie, you could appreciate this. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then someone says, oh, yeah, boy, we really fooled them, didn't we, you know? Mm, right, get those Navajos in here, do something. This, is, this, wasn't, this wasn't too clever. A friend of mine who was a lieutenant in the 5th RCT said, I have to go, that's exactly what happened, and I verified that in, in Hawaii. But that, anything, you see, that the, the communists could seize upon, which suggested that this was a part of a nefarious fascist plot in which Japan and the United States were speeding up their rapprochement. Oh boy, they seized on that big time. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I started Kaesong, which is still in North Korea today. I mean, it's within, yeah. Oh yeah, see, it was the ancient capital of, of unified, the only unified Korea well before the, the Choson dynasty. Uh, had its capital in Kaesong. So it had great symbolic significance to the Koreans. Um, but we didn't quite understand that, I think. Ridgeway proposed a, a hospital ship in Wonsan Harbor. Well, that would have been convenient. And then uh, he was getting pressured from Washington. He said, "We, you know, let's get this started. Let's get it started. He says, what am I supposed to do about a site? Let the communists choose it. Oh, boy, did they like that idea. So they choose Kaesong. In fact, they sent an American armored column into Kaesong. There was nobody there on the morning of July 8th. But the time our first liaison team arrived by helicopter, the town was totally in the hands of the communists, and they kept it. And they kept a corridor that was supposed to be uh, sanctified. And even after we switched to Panmunjom, Kaesong's status as neutral ground was maintained, even though it was a major base for, for North Korean and Chinese military operations. Uh, but th when they, the talks were renewed in the fall of 51, I think October, and at that point they were shifted to Panmunjom, which was, you know, just a little crossroads town, you know, big nothing. I would, it's not much now, except there's a few more trees than it did then. Yeah, Bob? 
Ellen, what is your take on the intelligence assessments about the likelihood of Chinese intervention yeah. within the military and you know, the, the decision yeah. to ignore? Basically? Well, uh, interest, yeah, Willoughby's papers, and he was the, the FECOM G2 key man, they're at the MacArthur Library, and they're very, very good. In fact, there's a real hoot because they're totally open and the same stuff, if it's held by NSA or the CIA, is probably still deep, dark, you know, secret, secret, classified. Unless you get a, you know, Freedom of Information Act and are willing to wait 20 years. Uh, fortunately, I got into the NSA stuff a little early in the year 2000 uh, through, through my cadence intervention, matter of fact. Um, uh, the answer is that we had pretty good information on capability, order of battle. You take a look at, at what FECOM knew about the Chinese order of battle in Manchuria. Who's there, where they are is really good. And how did they get all this? Multi-sourced. Uh, there were agents there. Um, MI6 was running a big op out of Hong Kong. Um, since they had diplomatic status in Beijing, they were running an MI6 operation out of Beijing. There were plenty of Chinese talking to them. Chinese would then come to Hong Kong and spill the beans, and we had a CIA station there and radio intercept station. And so there's plenty of material coming in. But what that gives you is capability and order of battle. It doesn't tell you intent. And the only person that knew was Mao Zedong, maybe Cho Enlai. And so, you know, that's all in one guy's head. And um, it looks as if there's a mole in the Central Military Commission into August of 1950. There's information we have about the Chinese decision-making that can't come except from somebody who was there. Now, Chinese, being pretty clever, could figure out very quickly that we had information that we couldn't have unless it was coming from somebody who was there. <laughs> oh, suddenly this goes dry. So at the very time, which is early October 1950, we don't have access, and the Brits don't have access. We don't know what's going on in the Politburo. We don't know what's going on in the CMC, except for what Cho Lai wants us to know. I'll go see Ambassador Panneker, you know, and tell him this, tell him that. Uh, even the Indians don't trust Ambassador Panneker. And it was pretty clear that this was a disinformation operation, but they didn't know what really was going to happen. And so uh, the first intervention, which is late October, I, I can't really say that Willoughby blew it or anything else. But once the Chinese take out an entire American cavalry regiment, two rock divisions, is there some problem, you know, with the fact that this is the Chinese? Peck Sun Yup has said this in my presence a number of times. He said, I went and talked to these Chinese prisoners after they had, by and large, destroyed his division. And, and Willoughby and the Americans are telling me they're Sino-Koreans from Manchuria. Peck Sun Yup says, I beg your pardon. This guy's from Canton. You know, this guy's from Sejuan. He's a regular in the Chinese army. Don't give me this, this stuff. And he identified what army they were from. And they'd come from the border of Indochina. They'd come from the army massed off Formosa. And he said, how, you know, how much more do we have to know about who it is we're fighting? 
the Marines on the West Coast captured an entire mortar platoon. They captured them because they all surrendered. And they surrendered because they had all been soldiers in the Nationalist Army. And, in fact, their whole division had been in the Nationalist Army. They couldn't wait to surrender. <laughs> oh, oh, and they... Did they spill the beans? You know, they say, oh, yeah, don't go up in those mountains. A lot of guys up there. Mm. So all that's there by the first week of November. Where where it gets silly is that MacArthur and Willoughby refused really to, to, to take that into consideration. After the fact, MacArthur said it was a reconnaissance in force designed to trip the Chinese ambush. Well, I got to tell you, the Eighth Army didn't see it quite that way. <laughs> you know, oh, where did these guys come from? Um, there are a lot of them, and uh, I mean, some of it's just ludicrous. Uh, in one case, they sent a, a, a two-division American Corps into the same area where American troops had been mauled four weeks later, earlier, and the new guys didn't know that, or didn't understand, you know, what had happened to the Eighth Cavalry Regiment. And so I think it's the second time around, you know, that where MacArthur and Willoughby really, really blow it. Willoughby's difficulty, and he did this in World War II, was to always minimize human intelligence and to minimize sources he didn't control. And so almost invariably he would come up with very, very conservative estimates of enemy strength and conservative estimates of intention. It's an absolute pattern. It begins on New Guinea and it sends all the way into the battle for the Philippines. Uh, sent one cavalry regiment to land on Los Negros. There were two Japanese divisions there. Cavalry regiment lands. Oh, boy, there are a lot of Japanese here. <laughs> they didn't tell us about them. So eventually they have to commit all of the 1st Cavalry Division and part of another division to take Los Negros because the Japanese, you know, stocked the place up with plenty of troops. Yeah, Rick? Oh, here we go. Here comes the theory stuff. Oh, dreary. Yeah. No, no, it's a big war. Right, right. I, I tend to, yeah, I think. Right, yeah. Well, I think if you don't win the, the 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 counterinsurgency part, winning the big war is a lot harder, a lot more costly. Um, hopefully, you don't let it get to that point. You know, actually, our record is not bad up until Korea. Greece don't do too badly there, for example. Um, I think I think one of the things is it's sort of like if you take it, you break it. You know, which is you inherit the war but you also inherit the host government, such as it may be. You inherit the host military establishment, such as it may be, um, that unless you take you know, very seriously the, the questions of nation-building, which I'm really going to discuss in the next book, uh, because in 5051 they're too busy fighting the damn thing to worry a whole lot about nation-building. So all the economic problems and political problems which are there certainly understood in 51, but they're not really attacked by the U.N. or the United States until, until late 51. And, um, and you have 
you know, what I would call continuing issues, which is to what degree do you put up with, with a, a host government that has an agenda of its own and is extremely difficult to deal with. I mean, we came very close to removing Sigmund Rhee in 1952. Not 53, but 52. Um, um, if, if it had been left up to the UN representatives, if it had been left up to the American mission in Korea, then we would have allowed some coup to take place in 52. But, you know, I think cooler heads prevailed or whatever you want to call it. And so, so Sigmund Rhee was allowed to re- rewrite the Constitution. He forced the Assembly to rewrite the Constitution, which then ensured his election. Very, very, very clever. He did it on the principle of more democracy. See, the Korean Constitution of 48 said that the president is chosen by the National Assembly. And if the National Assembly of 1952 had chosen the president, it would not have been Sigmund Rhee. Sigmund Rhee said, the National Assembly is full of communists, meaning his opponents. Uh, Therefore, we need more democracy. So we shall have the public, we will have the democratic election of president and vice president. Now, many of you, having dealt with countries like this, understand that what that means is the incumbent regime is almost guaranteed to win unless for some peculiar reason they choose to lose, which I don't think happens much. <laughs> you know, someone says, okay, government, who do you want me to vote for? Vote for me. Right. That, you know, that's how Sigmund Rhee got a second term. Was he overwhelmingly popular? Who knows? What he had was a pretty effective organization that ensured that he was going to win the election. He probably, in a straight vote, would have. Um, his, his challengers were no, yeah, they were, they were, they were even nastier than he was. Uh, so we found most of the alternatives, you know, very unpalatable. The only alternatives we liked were rock army generals, Peck Sun Yup being one of them. So we go and talk to General Peck. We talked to another, uh, Lee Chung Chong, who actually had refused to use his army to support Rhee's martial law regime in Busan and got fired. And so Rhee goes to these generals and he talks to them and he says, uh, 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 you better stay with me. And we go, U.S. talks to them and says, uh, how do you guys feel about helping us get rid of Sigmund Rhee? They said, you told us that wasn't good form. That's not good civilian control. That's not the way a good government should operate. And you could see our guys, well, yeah, we did say that, but, you know. And I think it's quite illuminating. In fact, in a pinch, the rock generals refused to intervene and overthrow the government. And they did finally in 1960 but only because Reeve was using the National Police and others to rig that election. And, and one of the, the dim, dimmest-witted generals in the Rock Army, he's known as Tiger Song, Koreans all call him Rockhead, was the chief of the Rock Army in 1960, and he had been a master sergeant in the Japanese Army, so he knew how to play rough. He refused to shoot at the students and the citizens of Seoul during the street. And at that point, it was clear that Reeve was no longer going to be president. So, and one can argue that even up to the the, 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 the affair, what, 1981, uh, Rock Army played pretty much by the rules. 
Park Chung Hee didn't necessarily, but but um, but uh, you know this the idea of, of civilian control at least in 1952 uh, worked against us when we wanted something else done. Um, but um, you know I, I think that that in terms of of um, economic assistance, boy, there are lots of lessons there. Um, there was a great debate in, among the American civil assistance people. What If we have limited amount of funds, how do we spend them? Do we spend them on refugee relief, epidemic control, lots of very real problems, or do we begin to make infrastructure decisions? Uh, how do you handle inflation, the black market? Uh, all the kinds of things we've run up into in Vietnam and Iraq and elsewhere, because I would argue that there is a there there is a broad similarity, you know, in these these cases where you have weak or failed states, and if for some reason you think it's important to intervene, then uh, what the army calls phase four ops, you got to pay a great deal more attention to that and expect that to spend a great deal of your legitimacy and your money up front and not wait till it gets worse because it probably will. Yeah, right? Well, yeah, um, Sun Kim. I don't think anybody knows, right? And, and, you know, this is ever since the old man died, 94, it was Kim Il-sung plus five. Then our friends would say plus ten. You know, everybody was guessing uh, because you're dealing with a medieval court. And, and it depends on the cousins and the half-brothers and sisters and the party structure and this inner court and, and what, what's going on. Because the regime, it doesn't care if people die up there, they starve to death or whatever. They fundamentally don't care. And what they care about, at least my interpretation, is they have restored the Chosun kingdom as it existed in the 18th and 19th century, sealed off for the rest of the world. And that's what they prefer. And, and you know, who knows? Now they're dangerous, much more dangerous than they would have been otherwise. On the other hand, rest assured, the United States Air Force does know something about nuclear weapons. Uh, for example, unless they're in silos, they have to be hauled out and launched from ground that's flat. I think it's three or five degrees. It can't be much more of a tilt. I can tell you in North Korea, there's not much ground that fills that bill. And and all kinds of target data. You know, we know where the missiles would be if they have them, where they'd have to put them to launch them. And I can tell you that the U.S. Air Force is really good at hitting stuff that doesn't move. That moves, it's a little bit different problem. Um, now, you know, does that mean preemption? No, which is, I don't think that's likely. Um, you know, the rest of the world out there is worried about this too. It's just not us. Chinese are, Japanese are. Um, so it's not, it's not as if this is just our problem. The rest of them, you know, Japan, for example, when the North Koreans launch a missile test, the Japan just goes a quiver. Um, because they, they understand that, that they're probably not aimed at Alaska, you know. They're probably aimed at Tokyo or some other place. The North Korea is not real friendly with Japan. In fact, the relations between Japan and North Korea are really bad. 
to some degree because the Korean communists are entrenched in, Korea, in, in Japan and, in fact, take money and everything else and, and subsidize the North Korean government. There's some terrible, um, tragic stories about dedicated Korean communists who have lived in Japan all this year, all these years, going back to North Korea and immediately being imprisoned and, you know, allowed to die because they're real revolutionaries. Uh, you, know, you, know, you don't want those people out there, uh, you know, spreading discontent. Go back to, yeah, go back to Korea, yeah, and then immediately get locked up. <laughs> In fact, there's a, a, a very touching novel by one of these people, or a human interest, you know, story. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. They, the Chinese don't want that. You know, they're 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 sensible. Um, they're not real fond of the North Koreans or the South Koreans, but but they're not they're not real big buddies of of North Korea. I mean, the minute um, it was clear that the, the Russians were cutting their ties with North Korea, the Chinese were right behind them in terms of foreign aid and stuff like that. There are. Um, about half a million or more Sino-Koreans within Manchuria, and the Chinese regard them as, as a, a questionable, of questionable loyalty. And what they don't need, you know, is some kind of upheaval in North Korea that would then spill. It's their borders they're concerned about. The Yalu border, you can't get across the DMZ. I mean, anybody does that, feeling suicidal. So when people defect or try to leave Korea, they have to come out through the north and then you know, cycle in from from, from China. And uh, at least I, we've been to Beijing twice, and, and uh, I didn't sense there was a great deal of fraternity <laughs> toward, toward North Korea. For one thing, North Koreans don't even ad- hardly admit that the Chinese fought the war. Uh, one day a year, the Chinese government is allowed to send a military representative out and, and put a wreath on a little bitty monument to the Chinese, to the Renmin Ji Zhuan Gun, the Chinese Expeditionary Force. And, uh, for China to come in and take over North Korea. I don't, I don't, I don't, that's like, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. They'd rather see the South Koreans take it. I really believe that. China and South Korea have got very good relations at the moment. A lot of them, you know, you go to Beijing and look around, Samsung this and, you know, it's all Japanese and, and South Korean companies. You know, they're building, they're rebuilding. Who's building China? Japanese and Koreans are. That's, that's where the money and the technical expertise and, uh, comes from. And some from Europe, but, but it's a Japanese and Korean presence in China, which is really sort of underwriting their development. They'll all be driving Hyundais, you know, one of these days. Little bitty ones, to be sure. Um, Anyway, thank you for your uh, attention. Ray E. Mason, Jr., professor, but you're always welcome here, Alan. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Consider this home and come back and visit us all the time. Well, good. Thank you. As long as it doesn't cost you anything, all right? (laughs) (laughs) We're not there yet. Thank you very much. And be sure and help yourself to the wonderful handouts if you're so inclined.